Hello, this is the Art Monthly Talk Show, where we discuss features from the current issue of Art Monthly magazine. I'm Mark William Lewis, recording recording this at, at home. Um, joining me online today are Bob Dickinson, a writer and PhD researcher based in Manchester, and Sophie J. Williamson, program curator at the Camden Arts Centre, both of whom have contributed texts to the July-August double issue of Art Monthly, which is available on our website at artmonthly.co.uk. Shortly, we're going to be talking to Sophie about her piece, Silence, which argues that silence is not passive. Whilst it can give us pause for contemplation, it can also, as artists have shown us, be oppressive and silencing. But first, we talk to Bob about his feature. In your piece, Domestic Radicality, you, uh, you posit that the domestic environment and the surroundings of the home have, uh, for some, become a haunted place rather than a haven, particularly during the, the lockdown period. Yeah, I was very um, sort of hyper aware when, I, when the lockdown started uh, of the, uh, the surroundings of the, of the place where I was living, where I'm, I'm living still and where I'm talking from now. And the amount of stuff that um, that one is surrounded with, objects that have a close association with the human being that lives here. Um, but I was also struck by uh, reports of increased, you know, reports of domestic violence. Um, so though I was also becoming aware of the sort of for people who do for some people who unfortunately are in these kind of relationships, troubled relationships, uh, there is this added tension. In fact, I think there's more tension for everybody. I mean, I live, I'm here on my own, but uh, you know, we're all surrounded by families and groups of people who live together. And um, I, was, I just became interested in the, the importance of objects and in the increase in emotional levels that, that I was aware of. And I, I started thinking about. I think the starting point really was, was 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 thinking about actor network theory. This this uh, idea that comes um, from uh, uh, Latour, and the link with the Swiss artist Daniel Spoeri, who who um, makes these trap uh, pictures, which are basically ob uh, collections of objects that are found in drawers or on tabletops that he then fixes and then attaches to uh, the wall, like a painting. So you're aware of these things, which you usually see looking down on them or looking at them from the side, suddenly up on the wall. But that makes you aware of the way those objects are interconnected and the way they are interconnected by um, human familiarity and by their uh, familiarity with each other. So I started thinking about the way the domestic world is full of these um, networks of uh, networks which which enable things to happen, which connect humans with non-humans, and uh and then i i then went on to think about um 
the 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 darker side of that the extent to which objects play a part on the relationship the humans have with objects and non-human objects actors in networks that 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 are part of a darker uh, picture of uh, the the domestic world and i just at the beginning of lockdown i just come back from argentina and i and I'd seen this piece by Valeria Anzuate in a show of women's contemporary art in Buenos Aires. And I just thought it was a really interesting performance video in which she is roll, she's rolling up uh, with a rolling pin, a piece of uh, pastry and she, she rolls it into a very, very thin, quite large disc, and she places it over her head and tilts her head back and opens her mouth. And of course, the pastry, because it's so thin, um, crumbles and opens up. And she just looks like a sort of ghost, uh, sort of uh, screaming, but it's completely silent. And I was, you know, very struck by this, and I, I stuck in my mind as well. So. That's really where the, the 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 piece took off, I think, and it leads to a discussion of, of a number of other artists and culminates in um, the, looking at the work of Gregor Schneider, the German artist who who uh, whose own house that he was brought up in, that his parents lived in. Um, in München Gladbach uh, has become his own artwork that he's taken to pieces. It's called Dead House and he's taken it to pieces. He's uh, transported it around, he's rebuilt it and, the, 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 and if you visit this place the rooms inside the house move about. Uh, it's an extremely disconcerting um, idea and it looks a uh, very disturbing environment and his his idea for this for this house, the, the house itself becomes a kind of object, a moving, uh, a moving object, and um, so uh, I think that 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 was my the sort of journey that I was trying to to take the reader on uh, when I wrote that piece. Mm. The Latour's actor network theory. Um, so what exactly is that theory? It's to do with kind of humans and non-humans being given equal agency and to do with his, his, his idea of circulatory capacity. Maybe well, just go into that a bit for us. Yeah, I mean, I like Latour because he's, I think his, his work has, uh, has been taken very seriously, but he's not kind of, he isn't an, an unserious person, but he's a funny person. He's got a really good sense of humor. Uh, I've got a friend who says, who, who said to me, oh, yeah, Latour's like the Eric Sykes of French philosophy. And I went to see him. I went to see Latour do an, a lecture at the University of Manchester um, a couple of years ago. And indeed, it's true. He is tall and gangly like Eric Sykes was. I mean, if you're too young to remember Eric Sykes, Eric Sykes is this very funny, uh, uh, thin, tall comedian from the 1960s and 70s. Um, but yeah, Latour is really interesting and uh, 
I've just been uh, working on a PhD in which I've been using A and Axonovo theory to look at the way critical writers like we are work uh, write about art uh, because it's a useful way of linking humans and non-humans. It's uh, you know you go to a gallery, you see an artwork. It's not it's not a human. It's it's an object or a group of objects, and so if you use actor network theory, you can see the way that writing can be a binding factor between a human or a group, some humans and some non-humans. And there are other parts, there are other, other non-human objects or uh, creatures perhaps involved in that net actor network that comes together with the job of producing a text. And I think those networks, you know, it, it, Latour would say, you know, there's absolutely no ex escape from, from networks. They are activated all the time everywhere, including in the domestic world. And so I'm simply looking at the way that, that or I was, uh, uh, yeah, entering or talking about the way that in this piece, the way networks can be activated in any situation in the domestic space and they can be activated for good and bad reasons and they can they can produce good and bad results in fact they can fail you know networks don't necessarily succeed they they just happen and they are simply the result of humans and non-humans interacting uh, which is what happens all the time mm. and you um you reference his his guardian interview in which he um he seems to be kind of saying lockdown could perhaps enable more reflection and i think this is kind of a tension in yeah. in in the piece and also sophie's piece to do with lockdown and the domestic environment and being in a quieter environment can could potentially be seen as a as an opportunity to reflect but could also be quite oppressive i just wonder what you thought of that and maybe what latour seems to think of that well, Latour has increasingly in recent years become more interested in um, matters of concern, what he calls matters of concern, which are it, similar to, to networks, but they're places, gathering points where um, issues that affect the whole face of the planet come together. So he's he's become much more interested in talking about the about the environment and about Gaia uh, in recent years and I think his when he did that interview he was possibly thinking about the extent to which we can use the lockdown or we could at that time because this was interview was done back in March or April when lockdown was a new thing we could use the potential of lockdown to uh, explore new ways of relating to each other and to the to the the small space that we're confined to, but also the the streets that we live in. And I, I, and you know, it does seem actually that you know the March and April were a far more kind of optimistic time than now. Uh, mm -hmm. The experience of you know going outside every Thursday and applauding uh, the uh, key workers and health workers 
that's kind of gone away now. We're in a different kind of situation. I don't know what Latour would say now. He might say he might say something different. It feels really um, a much more confused situation now. And I think certain good things have come out of what we've been through, but quite a number of quite worrying things have emerged um, in the last couple of months. And it doesn't quite seem the way it did back in April. Yeah, it definitely feels like um, the reality is starting to kind of set in. Um, and it feels like you touched on it um, earlier, but the theme of domestic violence feels like it's sort of latently. Yeah, it feels like it's it's sort of latent in it. And um, you talk, of course, about Martha Rosler's uh, Semiotics of the Kitchen, which is from 1975. And it, yeah. it feels like that's still a... It, and, and also, sorry, and also the kind of like the the connection between the the home and the um the maybe the inner psyche of the inhabitant um with the work. I think it's the um Alicia Lisa Atia work that you talk about. Yeah, I think um, yeah, her work, the house, is a yeah. is a sort of multi multi installation which tries to reproduce. Or, or, or refers to the situation of uh, a woman who's who has um, uh, has been hearing voices and is is suffering from a form of mental illness. And and I uh, and then she went on to uh, the uh, the artist went on to produce a series of house sculptures in which this whole idea of of uh perspective in terms of not just the perspective of looking at a object or a series of objects in three dimensions or or, or looking through objects in three dimensions but also the idea of human perspective is explored and i think that takes you into I think that takes you into the into or addresses the whole or one of the main uh, experience ways in which our experience of the the domestic world becomes much more intensely borne out during this experience of lockdown. The, it, it links the emotional pressure that we're under or could be under said to be under to the, the actual sort of three-dimensional uh, worlds that we're living in. And I mean, I'm lucky because I'm on my own right now, but I'm surrounded by people who are living in groups, as I said earlier, in this particular neighborhood. I'm sure it's the same everywhere else in the country. And, you know, I am aware that there are some people in my street. It's just a, a very... Um, average working class streets in Manchester that I live in and I know that there are people in the street who are having a bad time because I've, I can hear them you know sometimes having a bad time and you see sometimes uh, that emotion spilling out into the road you know and people will stand in the road and have a row or a fight and uh, I, I, I'm aware of the fact that that's um, uh, due to the fact that they're under a load of 
a load of extra pressure. And, uh, uh, and you can imagine what that's like, you know, uh, across the whole city and across the whole country. So, yeah, I, I think the, those, those works by Aya uh, uh, Lisa Attila sort of, they don't sort of spell out violence. They don't suggest domestic violence directly, but they do address the whole, uh, the whole way in which mental, your mental condition is deeply linked to the surroundings that you're in, the walls and the windows and the, the way that you're looking at them. Mm. The angle that you see things in can change from second to second, and it can reflect something deeply distressing. Mm. Yeah, it's something I think um, Valeria Anzwati mentioned at the beginning calls the sinister side of things. I think you quote her in your piece. Both of those pieces and also Martha Rosler's kind of draw seem to draw that out um, using different kind of devices or different settings. But they, they seem to draw out that sense of the sinister side of things. And it's, it's something which maybe reaches its zenith in the, uh, the Gregor, or it's, it's extreme in the Gregor Schneider work, where, um, yeah, just maybe you could go into that a little bit more. And the, the concepts that you bring in right at the end um, of the, um, the haunting, Mark Fisher's concept of the haunted, and the, yeah. the, idea of, the idea of the haunt or the old haunt. Yeah, I, 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 to be honest, I was in two minds about whether to, to, um, to dwell on Schneider for too long because mm. you look at his work and you, you think, um, is he is he going too far? Is he, is he too obsessed with with his house? Is it is it healthy? <laughs> But I think actually. Can I just quickly context... ask: is is it the same series as the Art Angel piece in London with the Mirror Twins? Yes, it's the same part, of the yeah. same series. Yes, it is. I think, um, yeah. and uh, yeah, and that was pretty. That was intense. Disturbing. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe you should describe that piece. Well, I think all these these pieces are disturbing because. Um, they invite you into into a space and you are into a place that looks like a house but it's not really a house it, it it's a house that's been taken to uh, it, it's a it's a it's a house that's being enacted in front of you and it's doing things that you really don't have any control of and uh, it's it's the house that in which the artist uh, has moved things about and is continuing to move things about and uh, introduce and he introduces uh, in the case of that art angel piece performers who are doing quite disturbing things and you don't know that they're performers you you just think they're people who, who are just living there doing them and sometimes he introduces what appears to be dead bodies that are lying on the floor and he's spoken about a, a kind of idea, an idealized version of his project, his project, which is just the one project, uh, which is to move his house around with, with his parents dead or alive and his family dead or alive inside the house. That's the idea. Um, 
is to preserve this world which which she grew up in and, and in which people have died in and uh it so it's it's, it's a quite a, a a disturbing idea and i think um when we think about this uh concept of the freudian concept of of unheimlich of the uncanny Mm. And and that's and that's a sort of that that plays on the idea of Heimlich, which is homely. It, you know, Schneider's idea of a home is is deeply unhomely, and um, of course he's talking also about something in which he's thinking about Ger Germany, post-war Germany. He's it's it's very much a judgment on German post-war German culture. But I think in, with with Mark Fisher, uh, the 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 British writer who who um, committed suicide because of you know mental illness and famously wrote about his own experience of depression. I, I think um, this this idea of the the home, the un the unheim the the unheimlich the the uncanny world in which you you kind of can't escape the home you can't you can't ever get away from it. It, it it you are haunting it even when you're not really there is a really fascinating idea and it, it's certainly something you know i i've experienced in in some ways i can remember places i've lived in that i can't forget and um experiences i've had in certain rooms that i've lived in that i've that i'll never escape you know uh, and I think that's very much what Schneider is is aware of and is reminding you of. What what I think about Schneider is that he's because he's an artist. He's he's what makes his work art is he's learned to bring the house to into the world of the gallery, and he's made the house and the gallery kind of indivisible. And by making the house move, he's penetrated, he's sort of brought it into the art world. And that's why it, it's important because when you go and see his work, you're kind of being, because the, the, the rooms are in the galleries, you are kind of being forced to go into his home, into his, the darkness of his mind <laughs> and his memory. And you, his mind is just as dark, you know, or my mind, or your mind might just might might interconnect because we all have this kind of potential for darkness um, that he's talking about, or that he's referring to, or that he's forcing you to be aware of. And it's a surprise, you know. It's mm. a shock. <laughs> Thanks, as always, to Bob Dickinson for coming on the show. Um, just a quick reminder before we talk to Sophie. Uh, that you can read these features and more uh, if you subscribe to Art Monthly magazine. There's a special offer available to all Resonance listeners, which is a free digital subscription with every print sub. Uh, take out an individual print subscription and receive free online access to the entire Art Monthly back catalogue going back to 1976. Uh, that's available at artmonthly.co.uk slash resonance offer. Sophie, in your piece, uh, Silence, you describe 
um, different types of silences. The silence in public spaces brought about by lockdown, um, more meditative silences as well as torturous forced silence. Um, mm. And silence in the context of political protests, particularly recently in the context of um, Black Lives Matter, but also women's struggles and struggles during the AIDS crisis. Um, mm. Maybe you could just talk about those different different types of silences. Well, maybe first I'll mention where I finished my article because it's kind of where Bob jumps off from. Yeah, that's um, true. So, um, which links back into what what you what you were asking about, but. Um, so I guess I'd been thinking about this piece for quite a long time before lockdown. Um, but one piece that I mentioned at the end, which is quite a nice link into um, Bob's article, is the work of Jung Hun Kim, whose work I saw on the kind of proliferation of digital content that started happening in, in April, I guess. Um, and he's a young Rotterdam-based artist. And he started this new daily ritual during lockdown of bringing together all these objects from his house and his, in his surroundings to kind of create a, an ecosystem of interconnected um, relationships between the objects, uh, which links to all these other silences that I'll, that I'll get onto, but in a way of it kind of being this geological meditation is the way that he describes it. Um, so this way of bringing together objects so that the silences between them um, are shifted to create a, a different perception of those relationships and that space between the objects. Um, and this, it, this for me really related to this concept of ma in Japanese. Mm. They've got several different concepts of space, but one, um, this one concept ma means, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, um, means a kind of meaningful pause or an interval in space or this in-betweenness. Um, and that being this kind of binding force between, between everything. Um, so that the silence between objects isn't an absence, but um, a kind of complete uh, constellation or world in itself. Um, but really, I think that uh, my interest in, in silence came from a very kind of everyday experience of silence. Um, one where I found there was a real intimacy between people. And I talk in the article about that happening in language, but also, well, I start off um, talking about it as a, as a very personal experience, kind of daily experience, this similar to Kim's um, experience of lockdown of being, um, you know, a commuter in London um, and experiencing these moments of kind of very deadened silence within the bustle of, this, of the city and finding that there's this real intimacy between uh, oneself and strangers uh, that silence holds. Um, so I've been thinking about that kind of intimacy between individuals, whether that's through um, artist and audience or, or writer and reader, um, and thinking about the work of Gaytree Spivak and the poet Mongmi Kim, um, both of whom really see that silent space between 
words and gestures as a, as a productive and active space. And that, of course, relates very much to, to the political. Um, so in, in Gaytree Spivak's work from, the, um, from her work around um, uh, the subaltern, she talks about, um, she's, she's a literary theorist, but also a translator. And she talks about um, language being a material that kind of can give way into nothingness. Um, it's a material that's, uh, that constructs, but it is made up of silences and it's within the silences between words that meaning and rhetoric is really created. Um, and so hers obviously comes from a very, political position of you know what what exists within those silences in uh, in hegemonic languages um, and the way that we as societies communicate and that really chimes with the work of Mong Lee Kim who um, is a poet that I've just started reading in the last year or two um, but whose work is very much related to um, the experience of being an immigrant. So she's from Korea, um, but grew up in the US. Um, and the way that she constructs her poems is in a very fractured way. So that uh, different words are kind of sat alongside each other in, in sometimes quite a uncomfortable way that creates disjuncture and phrases will um, appear out of context and physically on the page, they're kind of laid out as if to um, carve out silences in quite a uh, kind of quite an aggressive way, I guess. Um, so, for example, in her poem Dura, which I write about, she uses kind of square brackets to physically hold open the words and phrases to um, to prevent them from spilling back and um, and colonising the, the the silent space. And so it's really about how silence can be this productive, active, um, uh, and politicized space, I guess. Mm. Um, but yeah, so I, I guess I, that's where the article starts off with. But um, and that's come into into um, focus certainly during um, lockdown, and certainly with um, with the conversations around white silence. That's come right. about with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, but I think where the article, I, 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 was, I was writing this before the Black Lives Matter um, movement um, start or pr proliferated. Um, but that I think at the time I was really thinking about it in a much more kind of geological sense. So thinking about silence uh, amongst uh, the everyday and amongst language, but how that might translate over deep time. So thinking about the silences uh, within geology um, and across era, and that's partly because I was I uh, I had the great privilege of being uh, in the mountains in Banff, and so I, I, I really um, <laughs> I really enjoy that bit because you you sort of drift off into this um, almost this reverie of um yeah mount, mount rundle and uh, yeah. the silence between these yeah. two these two mountains these two stratas yeah i think i think for me there was a real um 
relationship between the things that I'd been thinking about silences within language and how that develops over time. Um, you know, how culture is passed from one generation to the next and, and, and with it inherent silences and how that might translate to the geological and, and kind of being in Banff in, in the middle of the Rocky Mountains, looking up at Mount Rundle and seeing these kind of strata in the mountains, uh, rock face where millions of years are compacted into such tiny amounts of space uh, that there's a real sense of, of silence. Um, you know, all of the kind of the, the life that is compacted into a few centimeters, uh, the expanses of time that's compacted in geological strata and how those kind of silence eras resurface and reform and, um, and shape a contemporary existence as well. And that's true with culture, of course, but also with the landscapes that we live within. I think um, to come back to Mian Mi Kim as well, it's when you talk about her, the way in which she performs these poems. Yeah. And you talk about, um, and also the, um, the uh, Footsteps work by Christian Markley, the idea of the idea of silence creating the possibility that it's not just a text or it's not just a piece of music that it's it's a notation in that's in constant dialogue with the present. Yeah, it's an idea that I just I really found that really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So Mong Mi Kim certainly sees her work as the kind of notation on the page, and um, so you can you can read some of her writing online, and I recommend. Um, listening to her reader as well. So um, on the Poetry Foundation's website, you can certainly see poems that she's written and then, and then hear her read them. Um, and there you can really see the way that she, she sees the words as a suggestion almost, that the way that she reads them will be in a completely different um, layout to how she's laid them out on the page. And so the words, the, the poems are really completed in the present. And it's a way I think that her her work kind of transcends its context in many ways. That although it comes from a very uh, specific context and a very specific experience, she leaves that space open for others to complete. Um, and so the silence, the emptiness between the words, becomes um, a place of liveness. Is filled with the liveness. Um, and that's true in the work of, of I speak about of Christian Markley's, where he um, covered uh, the gallery floor with vinyl records. They did have a soundtrack on them, um, but as they were exhibited, they were walked over by hundreds of visitors and kind of scuffed and scratched. Um, and while I was while I was at Banff Centre, I found one of these records in the in the library. They've got this amazing collection of artist books um, of which this, this record is one of. Um, and it had obviously sat in this collection for quite some time and had accumulated dust, um, but also had been taken out by people and had these kind of thumbprints and marks on it. But that it had accumulated this silence. So there was a kind of 
unspoken contract between each person that saw it that continued to maintain the silence of the vinyl because as soon as it's played all that kind of accumulated history on the surface of the vinyl will be will be wiped away um, so there's a kind of ever presence liveness and um, collectivity to to both Mongmi Kim's um, silences in, uh, amongst her words and to Christian Markley's uh, mm. vinyls, I think. Yeah, and uh, another artwork that I really want to talk about that you it's really nicely chosen in terms of, I suppose, how silence can be this kind of connective tissue between the past and the present and the, and the future is the um, Alora and Calzadilla work, the Raptors Rupture. Mm. Um, it's just a yeah, really interesting a work. work. Yeah. It's a work which I saw, as I, I'm guessing quite a lot of our, of our listeners did too, at uh, uh, Documenter. I think it was two Documenters ago, mm. or three even, maybe two Documenters. Um, but it's a really beautiful film um, of um, a... Uh, uh, so the, it's, it's based around um, a prehistoric instrument, the, a flute, um, which is the oldest found musical instruments uh, dating back some 35,000 years. And it's made from um, a griffin vulture's wing, wing bone. Uh, and so the artist brought together um, a, a flutist to play the, uh, this, this instrument for the first time uh, that had been played in this kind of, you know, having laid silent and dormant for 35,000 years playing um, the flute in front of an ancestor, in front of a, 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 a contemporary griffin vulture. Um, and so there's this really beautiful poetic in the film, I think, of how we might relate our own histories to our ancestors, but also the ancestors of the animals uh, and creatures around us. Um, and so, yeah, this this idea of um, you know language and sound being this kind of silent matter over these extended periods of time, and how um, sounds themselves might resurface thousands of years later, um, in the same way that kind of geological matter resurfaces. Yeah, the. Um... I think it's a new work, the Eustatic Drift by Kira Green, in which she yeah. gives voice to these, um, they're called? Graptolites. Yeah. Graptolites. Yeah. yeah, she also talks about um, scores, actually. It's a common thread, I think, that runs through all these people's works. Um, so, yeah, this is a, a beautiful film work um, that she made in Dobslin uh, in Scotland, which is this kind of beautifully craggy landscape. Um, and she kind of pans the camera around um, the kind of gnarliness of the, of the, of the cliff faces. And within the, within the, within the cliff faces, there's, um, amongst the shale rock in particular, it's kind of these dappled patterns that are these graptolites. And I think this is something which is quite familiar. I've been seeing it on the beaches with another kind of 
sea creature, which is also used as a, as a means to um, date geological strata. But in Dobbs Lynn, this, these, um, they were these very kind of small uh, sea creatures that were in abundance and they kind of colonized huge areas of, of the earth. But then um, when they went extinct, you, it's, it's possible to use them as a, as a marker in time for geological strata. And so she uses these as a, as a kind of, she talks about them as being an open score and, um, and that they can be read or that they're speaking over millions of years. They, they kind of emerged on the planet, I think it, over 500 million years ago. Um, and then she sees their kind of, embalmed reality now are still speaking um although dead that they have this kind of ever active presence geologically and so she kind of collaborated with an art with a dancer called katie co mm. um where this this kind of like bodily call and response between katie's body as a dancer um in its kind of uh yeah, it's, it's kind of um, temporality, I guess, of being alive with the, the mystery of these um, embalmed beings on the rock face. And they've kind of moved, obviously very fast in their lifetime, but in their fossilized state have moved incredibly slowly and with such um, solidity in comparison to uh the kind of biological precariousness of of katie co's body and i think that, that that work really speaks at this moment of um of the pandemic and us kind of maybe starting to think more urgently about the precariousness of us as a species and you know what our future might be where we might be in you know, tens of thousands of years time or millions of years time when we compare our tiny short lifespan as a, as a species on the planet in comparison to the graptolites, which, which existed for millions of years. And they're still speaking um, 500 million years on, you know, what will our kind of marks on the landscape be? And for me, that, that really chimed with um, this wonderful film Mm. called Into Eternity, which um, I think it's possible to watch online. I think, I think you, you can screen it online yeah. uh, by Michael Madsen uh, that was made in 2010. And it, it was a documentary about this um, deep geological nuclear waste site called Onkolo in Finland. Um, and I believe that it's just this year that it's starting to be used in its, in its proper sense. But when Michael Madsen made the film, um, it was really quite a new concept of, um, although nuclear waste had been around for a significant amount of time and nuclear waste had been being buried, it was always in a precarious and non-permanent state. Mm. And what Onkolo has done has been to establish a site which can in theory um, be left for 10,000 years 
um, untouched and if undisturbed um, can maintain integrity to keep this nuclear waste. So it's a kind of uh, permanent disposal site. And I think when we think about the Anthropocene and our, our impact uh, in the geological future, the one thing which will really make the most significant mark is, is nuclear fallout and how uh, uh, nuclear debris across the planet will leave its this lasting marker and so I was interested in this relationship between um, Kira Green's film and her kind of reading of this geological strata as, a, as an open score to think about what our geological score will be in the future to be read by uh, well, probably not humans, but yeah, there's an, these various attempts to try might and exist in 10, communicate years. with this imagined entity that might stumble on this nuclear. Yeah, nuclear yeah. So it's really interesting. So they've kind of brought together a lot of specialists in different realms, scientific but also linguistic, um, and anthropologists to think about how you might communicate with um, an unknown. Uh, sentient being in the future, hmm. uh, intelligent being in the future, um, and I I found the most compelling argument um, out of all of them is to leave the site unmarked, um, hmm. to to not kind of uh, bring any attention to the site that might bring curiosity because the 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 likelihood is that, that any kind of linguistic or uh, pictorial, or, yeah, pictorial um, message that might be left on the site is likely to be misunderstood in ten thousand years' time, um, and instead just kind of cause curiosity. Um, so yeah, so I, it's interesting thinking now about you know how we might how we embrace silences within society and culture, but also how we do that within a landscape uh, and within geology and how we might use that understanding of mediating silences to think about uh, global futures as well. Mm. Um, yeah. And then that kind of also links on to celestial silences. Oh, um, the, um, the, yeah, the Fermi, the paradox. Fermi paradox. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I was introduced to um, by another of Elora and Cal Calzadia's works um, called The Great Silence, which is um, a wonderful film work that's based in Puerto Rico um, by the uh, Arecibo Observatory, in, which is based in the middle of these kind of lush jungles. I recommend Googling some pictures of it. It looks pretty incredible. Um, but it's in the middle of these, this really lush forest and the artists have turned their camera away from the kind of celestial silence that the observatory looks out at and into the, the nature that surrounds, surrounds it. Um, so it's narrated by, by the parrots that live in that forest. Um, and the Fermi uh, paradox is... Yes, yeah, sorry. go on. Well, they're sort of, the parrots, as far as I understand, are sort of saying, well, why aren't you trying to communicate with us? Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That we, you know, humanity puts all of this energy and resources uh, 
and kind of existential anxiety into, into looking out into the universe and hoping for there to be something out there that we're not alone in the universe. Um, so the Fermi par paradox is based around that, is that um, bearing in mind that there's hundreds of billions of stars uh, in the Milky Way alone that are uh, the, that have uh, very similar conditions to our sun and that has the high probability of Earth-like planets that, uh, that are many billions of years older than, than our solar system, it, it stands to reason that there should be intelligent life out in the universe um, that should be far more developed than, than our own and surely then should have been able to, there should have been some mark or some trace of, um, of intelligent life on our planet. And so this kind of existential kind of anxiety of humanity looking out into this great silence of the universe and the parrots kind of wondering why we're not looking inward to our own planets mm. uh, and engaging more with the, with the life forms that are here. Mm. Especially as they're, they're endangered, aren't they, those parrots? They are endangered, yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, I just wonder if, if we could take it back a bit to um, just something I wanted you to touch on about Susan Sontag. Yeah. Um, yeah. The idea of the idea of kind of in a secular culture, art being a new form of spirituality, I think is quite interesting, and what that has to do with silence in her. Yeah. So um, yeah, she she kind of writes about um, it's an it's an essay from 1969, I think. Yeah, 1969, the aesthetics of silence, um, and it's. An essay about, you know, it's already some years after um, John Cage's Four Minutes 33, and it's in a moment where there's kind of artists like John Latham who are burning his scoop towers and Gustav Metzger's uh, art strike and this, this, uh, this drive by artists to um, reject meaning and to somehow return to silence or to embrace or force silence through their work um, and she sees that as a as a kind of new form of of spiritualism which i think still really resonates today i i think that um there's a sense of us all trying to find some sort of quiet in our life which is maybe you know in a in a way due to the kind of developments in society where we've lost that uh, spiritual space so much that we maybe turn to meditation or, or, or finding quiet spaces somehow. Um, and so, yeah, she was seeing that in, in, in artworks. And I think that that's a trope that continues to exist and has done since she wrote that essay uh, in the late sixties through many works and it changes decade to decade i guess um yeah and i think that takes another turn also i also talk about karen barrett's um writing on the void and i think that has taken that susan sontag's writing has taken a, a turn and it's maybe developed in barrett's writing with um the development of 
understanding around quantum time and quantum physics and how the void um, uh, the void might be a space of infinite possibility as well so that the space of silence becomes something which is not at all about nothingness but to do with possibility yeah and um not to put too fine a point on it but just at the end you say you say in our temporary quiet present we continue our silent communication with the silent palantropic turning of the earth's matter past present and possible so yeah. i don't know if that, if that i mean that's that's about that's about what's happening now isn't it in the lockdown and i i don't know if you sort of think I necessarily that, specifically mean it no. about lockdown actually but about um I mean, maybe it is to do with, you know, yeah, this kind of existential anxiety of of our the possibility or the very suddenly real possibility of our species coming to the to an end. But um, but certainly silence being this space for infinite possibility is something which I think uh, holds a lot of power and a lot of optimism, I hope. Okay, well, let's end on end on that optimistic note. <laughs> um, thanks so much, Sophie. Thank um, you. And thanks, Bob. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks to Bob Dickinson and Sophie J. Williamson for, for coming on the show and talking to us about their texts. Um, and thanks, as always, to Resonance FM for hosting us. Uh, you can find this as a podcast uh, on our website at artmonthly.co.uk or on your podcast app. Um, and thanks to you for listening. Bye-bye.